The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And once again, it is our privilege to open up Scripture to see what God's Word has to has to say to us. I mean, almost always after we read the text for the sermon, I ask the Lord to, to open up our hearts to show us the very thing that God wants us to see. And we do need to realize that the Bible is a supernatural book, and if we're going to glean any spiritual truth from Scripture, it has to be because the Holy Spirit reveals that to us. And much of what we read in the Bible, oftentimes it's very strange to us. Sometimes there are things that are said here that are paradoxical, and often those paradoxes of Scripture are very hard for unbelievers to take. For instance, Jesus promised in Scripture that the reward of following him would be a life of persecution. And he said that Christian, the Christian life would be hard that it will turn family and friends against you. He told the disciples they would be hated because of their faithfulness to him. And yet instead of turning away from Jesus, instead of quitting following him, knowing that it would invite troubles into their lives and knowing that heartaches would come, they kept on following They kept on following. And that's one of the paradoxes, uh, how that Christianity could ever have grown like it did when the physical rewards of it are often pain and suffering, torture and death. Now, our text today shows that whatever we surrender to Christ in the present will be more than compensated in the future. Now, notice the question that Peter asked in verse number 27 And then this wonderful promise that Jesus gives in verses 28 and 29. Now, if you'd stand with me one more time as we look at God's word. Matthew 19, verse number 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and follow thee. What shall we have therefore? Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. Father, we thank you for your word. And we do ask that you would open our eyes to truth today. Help us to see what you have for us in these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Peter's question in verse number 27 is just simply this. Lord, we have left everything. So what do we get? What's in it for us? Now that's the value of really of studying. We see the value of studying the the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, which is our method, because we approach this text and we already have the context for the question that Peter asked. Now, this is not something that just arrives out of the blue, because Peter had just heard the conversation that had taken place between Jesus and the rich young ruler. 
Now, we talked about that last week. They were discussing, discussing the issue of eternal life. And the young man wanted to know what good thing that he could do to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, as we looked at verses 23 through 25 last week, we learned that this, this question, what can I do to enter the kingdom of God, is the same thing as asking, what must I do to be saved? Getting into the kingdom, getting into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God, is the same thing as asking the question, what must I do to be saved? And so Jesus gave an answer to this young man that was very troubling. It was very troubling to him and also troubling to the apostles because he told him that he must sell all that he had and give everything that he had to the poor. And then he was to begin a life of service to Christ in which Jesus Christ would be the Lord of his life. And that answer was very troubling because the Jews had always been taught, they grew up with this, that wealth, riches, showed God's favor. And this man also thought that he had already done everything that he could to be right with God and prove his worth to God. But Jesus told him that he lacked one thing. And in this one thing, he exposed this man's heart that he loved his money more than he loved God. And that meant that the man missed the most important thing of all, the most important thing of all of God's commandments, which is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. But the man was unwilling to obey Christ and he rejected him as the Lord and he went away sorrowing because the price was too high to pay. Well, after he left, Jesus told the disciples that it was impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. And he illustrated that graphically with the camel. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be saved. Now that showed the complete impossibility of salvation unless we come on God's terms. That it takes the sovereign grace of God to make the impossible possible. So that's the context of Peter's question. He and the other disciples had left all to follow Christ. Now, he didn't have all that the rich man had. The apostles didn't have everything that young man had, but they had forsaken all that they did have. Peter had left his fishing business. He left his home. Matthew left his job as a tax collector. The other disciples left their businesses. They left their families. And the question is, had they done enough? Was their sacrifice enough? Now, again, I say Peter didn't have what the rich man had. The rich man would have left behind much more than Peter and the other apostles did. So was it enough? And if it was, then what would be the reward? Well, I want you to notice first this morning the present problem. Now, if we go back to the calling of the 12 apostles in the 10th chapter, we find there that there is a certain life that's been promised to those that follow Christ. In Matthew 10:22, Jesus said, And ye shall be hated... Of all men, for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. The disciples would be hated. And then according to verse 23, that would include persecution. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel to the Son of Man become. He said that there would be separation from their families. That's according to verses 35 and 36. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. 
Death would come to them, according to verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that tells us that there is a lot of heartache and sorrow that goes with being a Christian. And this is why we dare not promise a person that we're trying to bring to Christ that they'll have a happy life. Jesus said that you'll go through all of these troubles. And so to the unconverted, Christianity does not look attractive at all. And that's one of the paradoxes of our faith. Now, down through the centuries, there were potential Christians who knew much more than we know today what a life of following Christ would be like. They could see the evidence all around them. They saw people that were Christians that were fed to the lions. They saw Christians that were crucified just as Jesus was crucified. They saw Christians that were burned at the stake. One of the favorite methods of killing Christians was to put them in a sack with poisonous snakes, tie up the sack and throw it into the river. A few years ago, we visited a a dungeon in Austria where there were just terrible instruments of torture that were used during the Inquisition when the Roman Catholic Church put Christians to death because they would not renounce their faith and they would not swear allegiance to the Pope. And so Peter's question seems to be a very fair question. What is the reward for giving up all to follow you? Why should we do it? What do we get? And the discouragement of discipleship is often exposed in that very dilemma. Is it really worth it to serve Christ? I mean, after you've given all that you can and you still find yourself sick or you find yourself without a job, you find family problems and maybe all of those at the same time, is it really worth it to continue to follow Jesus? Is it worth the fight? So it's a fair question that Peter asked and it's the question that Jesus answered. It's a fair question, and it's not one that God is unprepared to answer for any of us. In fact, he has an eternal plan that could have been very much different than it is. I mean, it would have been good enough if we could just barely get out of hell with the smell of smoke on us, just to get out by the skin of our teeth, that would be enough. But Jesus promises so much more. Now, the present problem is the suffering, it's the heartache of the Christian life. Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Now, secondly, would you notice the future promise? You know, I would say that 99% of all of our discouragements are, they would be solved if we would think more about the future than we do about the present. Christians are discouraged about the present because we don't focus focus enough on, on the future. We don't really have enough faith to consider the promises that Jesus gave. Now, the Apostle Paul had some very good spiritual insight on this. He wrote to the Romans and he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He also wrote to the Corinthians, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And he went on to say, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, 
Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. Now that is a very common problem for Christians to focus on the present. But if we're to find any consolation, we must think about the future. And then, when we do, those things that are in the present appear completely in a different light when we understand what God has prepared for us in eternity. James said, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little while, and then it vanisheth away. And he's just telling us that this life is short, and there is an entire eternity that's waiting for us. But as we think about that, we we really ought not to think that the future is the only thing that there is for a Christian. A few weeks ago in a a bulletin article, I I commented on the present preservation of God's people. And and I said in that article that God is is probably, or, or it's probably more an act of God's graciousness to keep us saved than is our initial salvation. Now, it is so true that it takes abundant grace for God to save us, but that grace is greatly multiplied in order to keep a sinner saved. Now, before, we didn't know anything about the grace of God. We didn't know about the consequences of sin. We didn't know what was in store for us if we didn't turn our lives from what they were. We didn't realize any of that until one day someone came to us and gave us the gospel of Jesus Christ and told us all about those things. And then we got saved, we believed. And when we did, all of those things became clear to us. Now we understand that. We understand what God had to do. We understand the suffering of Christ and what it took for God to reconcile us to him. Paul said that when we sin, grace abounds. And so how much more does does God's grace abound when we as Christians continually and willfully sin against him? Now, that takes an abundant amount of grace for God to cover that sin when we are so ungrateful for what God has done for us. But what does God do? Does he cast us off? No. He just keeps on dispensing grace from an an endless supply. Now, as I said, it would be enough that God would just drag us through with the smell of smoke on us, but he does much more than that. So Christians have plenty in the present to be thankful for, a lot to thank God for, but we still have to live for the future. We need to focus on the future because we are now acquainted with God's grace in the present. We know what God can do, and so we can have that sure hope of what happens in the future. So Peter asked the question, what shall we have therefore? What will we have? And Jesus answered the question. Now, first of all, he said, you're going to rule in righteousness. This is one of the things that we get. We will rule in righteousness. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, that's an interesting promise. And weren't the disciples overly interested in this very thing? What positions of authority would they have when Christ came into his kingdom? And I suppose we might 
criticized Peter because he didn't learn very much, it appears, from the discussion in chapter 18. The disciples asked there, who is greatest in the kingdom of God? Then later on in the 20th chapter, which we'll get to in a, in a few weeks, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked if her sons could have the highest authority in the kingdom. She said, can you have one sit on your left hand and one sit on the right hand of the throne? And then wasn't it Peter, James, and John who were the only disciples that saw Jesus in his glory in the transfiguration? And wouldn't they still be thinking, well, we surely must be the greatest in the kingdom. Why would you ever elevate Matthew or Simon Zelotes or Philip or Nathaniel? Why would you elevate them above us? Aren't we the ones that saw you in your glory in the transfiguration? And again, those are fair questions. We're human. That's just the way that we think. Well, Jesus has an answer for them about the kingdom and one that would certainly pique their interest. I mean, Matthew is the is the only one of the evangelists who records this part of the conversation that took place between Jesus and the apostles. And the reason that he does is because Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew's the one who tells us about Christ as the king, and he began with an account or a genealogy of Jesus' life, his descent from Abraham and King David. Matthew begins this way, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham's the father of the Jews. David is Israel's greatest, most glorious king, the most beloved king. He was the one that was promised to have an everlasting throne. And so the disciples were very interested in what Jesus had to say at this point when he talks about this everlasting kingdom because that's the very thing they've been wondering about all through these episodes in the book of Matthew. And notice what Jesus said, ye which have followed me. Well, in other words, this is what's going to happen to those of you who will follow me. He says, in the regeneration. And that's a most interesting term. It's used only two times in Scripture. The other place is in Titus 3, verse number 5. And there in Titus, the term regeneration refers to the new birth. It refers to a genesis, a beginning again, a washing of regeneration. And that's what happens when you become a born-again Christian. You are recreated in Christ. You become a new creature in him. Now, in this place, though, the reference is not to the new birth. It's not to the renewing of the soul, but here it talks about the renewing of the earth, the regeneration, when the kingdom of God actually comes to this earth, and this is when the throne of David will be reestablished and restored, and Jesus Christ will sit on that throne and reign in perfect peace and righteousness. So here Jesus reiterates the everlasting kingdom that will be established. Now, folks, that's not figurative language. It's not symbolic. There really will be an earthly kingdom. There will be a new temple that will come to this earth. And there's just too much scripture to deny it. And so you have to be very careful about who you might call a a heretic or a blasphemer on this issue because there's so much of this in the word of God. And then notice the reference that Jesus makes to himself. He calls himself the son of man. And that's an Old Testament term for the Messiah who is God. Daniel chapter 7 says, this is Daniel in his vision of God. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, listen, one like the Son of Man. 
came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they were brought him and they brought him before him and there was given him listen dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, if you ever get into an argument with the Jehovah's Witness over the eternal Godhead of Jesus Christ, take them to Matthew chapter 19, verse number 28, and then go to Daniel chapter 7. And there you'll see that it is the eternal God, Jesus Christ, who rules both Old and New Testaments. So Jesus talked about the reestablishment of the kingdom. Israel had been brought low. Even then, at the very moment that Jesus speaks this, they're under the Roman rule. But the Bible teaches that they will rise from their captivity, and this will be the nation that rules all the nations of the world, and through them all nations will be blessed. And this is the kingdom where there is perfect government and perfect peace will reign. When Christ comes back to this earth, sin will be restrained. Peace will come to all of God's creation. The animal kingdom will no longer be predator and prey. The Bible says that the lion will eat straw like an ox. Weapons of war will be beat into farming instruments. And God will bless the whole world with abundance of crops so that poverty and Starvation is destroyed forever. That's the regeneration that he speaks of. And when it comes, he says that the apostles will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Have you ever wondered about that? You ever wondered why that there are still Jewish people in the world? And they have been since the time of Abraham? I mean, can you still find Philistines? And, and can you find Moabites and Ammonites and Hittites and Mosquito Bites and all the rest of the Bites? I mean, can you find those still today? No, you can't. All of those ancient people are gone. There's no trace of them. But the Jews, the Jews have always retained their identity. For 4,000 years, they've been an identifiable race. We still have them today. They have survived all the attempts at extermination. The Assyrians tried it, the Babylonians tried it, the Germans tried it, the Russians have tried it, Arabs have tried it, but they're still here. Why? Because God has made them a promise. God preserves them according to the promise of a future kingdom. And at that time, God will call them out. Then, at the proper time, He'll bring all of them from the four corners of this earth and he'll identify them once again according to those 12 tribes that we find in the Bible and the apostles will rule over them. But I want you to notice something about this promise that Jesus here is not just talking about the apostles. He's not saying that only the apostles will rule over them and he's not saying that every apostle is going to have a particular tribe assigned to them but there's a promise here for every person that's a believer in Christ. All of us have a part of this promise. We are destined to reign with Christ. In 2 Timothy, Paul said, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. In Revelation 20, verse 4, 
the Apostle John writes, and he says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, that's the Antichrist, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, that's the 666 that you're familiar with, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, if you have your Bible open to that scripture, you need to underline right there, a thousand years. In Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, that's speaking of those that are saved, on them the second death hath no power. That's talking about hell. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and listen, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And you could underline a thousand years again right there. What is that? Well, it sounds like a thousand years, doesn't it? Six times in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 7, the Scripture says a thousand years. Now, who's anybody to say then that it's not a thousand years? Oh, the length of the earthly kingdom is a thousand years, and Christians will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And if you want to give that up and say that it's figurative, then let somebody else sit on your throne. No, it's real. The Bible shows us it's real by using that term a thousand years over and over and over again. And then Jude repeated the prophecy of Enoch, which says that Christ will come back to the earth and we'll come with him. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. And so it's not just the apostles that will reign, but all of us that are believers in Christ, we will reign with him. Now, isn't that a glorious future? Isn't that something for us to look forward to? And so you worry about not having enough money to, to buy a house or to pay your rent or to buy a new car? Do you worry because you can't wear designer clothes? Well, the rich young ruler had all of that, and the apostles were dressed in rags, but they left everything behind. And so what will they have in the regeneration? Jesus said they will have thrones. Peter said, what do we get? If we follow you, what do we get? And what we get is not a temporary place. What we get is not a tiny plot of ground, a homestead. What we get is a throne. What we get is to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, is there anything else we get? Well, if that's not enough, Jesus goes on to say, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. So there's something else in here that he promises. He promises that we will receive new relatives. Now, going back to the 10th chapter again, Jesus said that he came to divide families. Now, some people are under the mistaken impression that Jesus came to unite people. Jesus never said anything about uniting people. I mean, not lost and, and saved and not nations and not peoples, not tribes, not kindreds, not at this time. He doesn't say anything at all about uniting people, but he does say a lot about dividing them. He said that he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
And so in this present form of the kingdom, there is no universal peace and there won't be any. He said, your foes will be those in your own household. And there are many of you that have experienced that. Some of you that came out of Roman Catholic backgrounds, you know, you know how tough it is when the family gets together and you're the one that has forsaken the Virgin Mary. Now, especially in Hispanic families and Filipino families, you know what happens when one receives Christ. Your families are divided and you're living in a whole another environment than what it used to be. Now, what did you get then when you became a Christian? Oh, you got a new family. You became a child of God through faith and you were brought into God's family where all other believers share what you have. You know what I love to do? I love to travel and I love to meet other Christians. I really like it when we have people that come and visit Berean and they're from different parts of the world. But when I'm traveling, and, and isn't it just a really a great thing when you find out that another person is a Christian? I mean, when you break that barrier... Uh, between you and them, and you find out that they're a Christian, doesn't that change things? I mean, there's a gleam that you get in your eye. There's a gleam that comes into their eye. And you look at each other and you say, we think the same thing. We're just alike. And there's that instant bond that transcends race and nationality and economy. Now, folks, did you know that there is a Berean Baptist church in Kenya that's named after this church? And we don't have anything in common with them on an economic level. There's nothing that we have in common with them on a social level. There's not much that we have in common with them in custom. But you know what we do have? We each have the Word of God. And we each have the same Savior. And we each have the same hope. And if they should come here or we should go there, there's always a warm bed and a good meal because we're Christians. Now, you've never met them. They've never met you. 10,000 miles doesn't change anything. We have the bond of Christ that passes between us, and we are instant family. Instant family. The only blood that really matters is the blood of Christ. So you get that when you become a Christian. Now, you might lose a few family members, but you gain a family that comes from all the nations of the world. Jesus said, you get a hundredfold more. I was reading one writer who said, well, that's, that's hyperbole. He's using hyperbole. I don't think so. Every kindred, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all of them have some of your relatives in there. And that's because you're joined in Christ. So if anything, a hundredfold is not hyperbole. It's an understatement. Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. What doesn't it mean? Well, you are not promised worldly wealth. Now, the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers misinterpret this scripture, and they tell you that if you will forsake everything, that God will blow up your bank account, and you'll never have room to store all of your money. And their usual method of telling you how that will happen is take all of your money and send it to me, and you'll get rich. Now, we know who gets rich in that scheme. You look at the houses and the diamond rings and take a look where Kenneth Copeland lives and where Benny Hinn lives and where Joyce Meyer lives. See where they park their jets and you park your 1986 Jetta. We know who, we know who gets rich in that scheme. 
No, God doesn't, God doesn't promise you that. Now, you might get rich. I don't know. Maybe you will get rich. I tend to think that what God does, he gives you exactly what you can handle. He gives you what you can handle. Now, it might be more or less than another Christian, but what does that matter? It doesn't really matter because you already own it all. You already have heavenly riches in Christ. You, you're not going to have a big bank account that can be drained. You know, they tell us that many of the lottery winners that win millions of dollars, that in a very short amount of time, they've lost all of their money. Well, the bank accounts that people have here will be gone. All of it's lost. You may even lose your life, but you have so much more in Christ. You have an account that's reserved for you, and you cannot spend it all. Peter said, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And so you lose your family, no problem. Make a bad investment, that's not a problem. You just have a short time to wait and then you'll reach your inheritance. Now, would you think of it like this? What if you were 18 years old and you knew that you had millions of dollars that were being held in a trust account and you would receive that when you reached the age 25? But today, you're having a hard time. Can't meet your bills. You can't, you, you, maybe you're sick, as I said before. Maybe there's all different kinds of things that are going wrong and you really need money. You need money really bad. What would you do if at the age of 25 you knew that you'd have $100 million in a trust account? What would you do? Well, I know what I would do. I would struggle through. I would keep going. I would keep my eye on that prize and I'd know that it was coming for me. I wouldn't sweat another day if I knew that was going to happen. Well, this is exactly what God tells you. One of these days, your account will mature. One of these days, that trust account will be handed over to you. And then you'll say, is it worth it to serve Jesus? What do we get? And you'll find out what he has for you. So there's plenty more than you'll ever be able to spend because God has an inexhaustible supply. So that's the present problem and the future promise. Now let's see what else that he says. Jesus, Peter said, what, what about us? What do we get? How about this? Thirdly, the final place. He said, you shall receive a hundredfold and you'll receive everlasting life. So what do you get? Well, what about heaven? What about living forever in a place where there's perfect health in the paradise of God? What about that? Now, I wish I had time to talk all about heaven. Maybe you think when I'm preaching, I talk too much about hell. And the reason I talk so much about hell is because I want you to go to heaven. But let's think about heaven. Now, the rich man was not convinced that he was going to hell. And so Jesus gave him the law to show him he was a guilty sinner. But what did he miss when he walked away? He missed heaven. I mean, he, didn't, he had to hear about hell. He had to hear about sin. He had to hear about all that before he could go to heaven. But when he walked away, he missed the part where Jesus could tell him what he just told the disciples here. He missed the part about what he would get, and heaven is part of what he would get. Jesus said, you'll get life, everlasting life in heaven. Now, this becomes very interesting when we look at the case of the apostles. Now, you have your Bibles there. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. 
And I want to tell you a few things about heaven. I can't tell you very much in the time that we have left, so when you have time, read the rest of this chapter because it contains a lot about heaven. But we're going to look here at just a small part that relates to the question that Peter asked. Look at verse 3 and 4, Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away." Now, folks, right there is where all of those, those hardships of life that we read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 10 are wiped away. All of the difficulties of the present problem melt away there in verse number 4. Is it worth it to trust Christ? Is it worth it to stay faithful? Well, yes, because the memory of all the pain and the hardships will be gone. Now, look down the page a few verses. There's a description as you go down about this beautiful gleaming city that sparkles like a, like a crystal clear diamond. It goes on to describe the wall of the city. And, and it says there are 12 gates in the wall. And, and if you look at that, each of those gates has the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now that, that's great for the Jewish people. That's highly symbolic because it says in order to get into heaven, you have to go through the nation of Israel. You say, well, how? Well, that's the nation that gave us Christ. We're blessed because of Christ. He came through the nation of Israel. And, that, and their names on the gates to heaven are symbolic that we come through Christ who came from Israel. Now look at verse number 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there are 12 foundations to this beautiful wall that surrounds the city of the New Jerusalem, and every one of those foundations has the name of one of the apostles inscribed into it. Peter, what do you get for following Christ? Oh, would it be so terrible to give up what the rich man had or anything else for this? Eternal life? where every person that passes through the walls of that, uh, the wall of that city, through the gates, sees in the foundation the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb that were faithful to Jesus Christ? Peter, what do you get? What about, you want recognition? What about this? I mean, what can better, be better than this? Peter's name could have faded away with history, and yet we're reading about him in the pages of Scripture even today and throughout all eternity going in and out of the city of heaven. There we'll see the name of Peter and Matthew and James, John, Nathaniel, Philip. We'll see all of those names written in the 12 foundations. We'll see his day, their names in glory forever. So what do you get? Well, you get thrones to rule from. You get a family to love and cherish as they do you. You get riches that can never be exhausted. You get a city with gates of pearl and streets of gold, mansions that are prepared. What do you get? Eternal life with Jesus Christ, who loved you and gave himself for you. Now, if you can't judge that to be better than anything the world has to offer, you need a straitjacket. I mean, you are a danger to yourself and people around you. 
if you can't see this. And here's the best news of all. It's all free. You didn't have to do anything for this. Everything that you have, do you understand, came from God anyway? Didn't it? Everything you have came from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, What do you have that you did not receive? So what you give up and what you give away was his anyway. And you give up what you don't own to get everything that you will own. Now, folks, that's the real paradox that we see here. Who in the world would choose the world over Christ? It's a trade that only a fool would ever make. Now, can you have it? Yes, you can. How? Trust Jesus. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in him. He will become the Lord of your life, and you'll have everlasting life with him. So what do you get? One word. Everything. You give it all to get it all. You get everything. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that we find in this passage. Every single day that we go through our lives, we face all kinds of problems, some greater than others. Some people in our congregation are going through things that are very, very difficult. Um, Maybe even comparing what we have to the world seems like we don't really have very much now. And we wonder, why does the world prosper? I mean, that's the very question that the psalmist asks. Well, why do the wicked prosper? But we know, Lord, the one who really prospers is the one who knows you as Savior. All of this is waiting for us. Eternal life is waiting for us because we give everything to you now. And I just ask if there's someone here today who hasn't done that, who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would understand this very clearly. It's not by what we do. It's what you have done for us. And because of what you've done for us, nothing in the world really matters anyway. So I just pray that someone today would put their faith in you. Strengthen us as your people in the terrible times that we go through, difficult situations. Give us that hope. Help us to focus on the future and the great promise made in this passage. Bless us today, Lord. Speak to someone's heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.